This week on a lively experiment, the easing of some COVID restrictions is on the horizon. So what's next for Rhode Island and a full dissection of the governor's race and the candidates for Congressional District 2. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Wendy Schiller, political science professor at Brown University, former state representative John Brian, and WPRI Target 12 investigator Tim White. Hi everyone and welcome to Lively, I'm Jim Hummel. As COVID infection rates continue to drop, mandates and restrictions designed to hold them in check will be gradually phased out beginning this weekend. Governor McKee announced on Wednesday that smaller venues no longer need to require proof of vaccination or masking and students will be able to ditch their masks on March 4th if their own districts agree. John, let me begin with you. That cheer we heard was from a lot of students across the state. That groan we heard was school committees who now have to make their own decision and you have some parents on either side of it. That's gonna be the real battle, isn't it? Yeah, it is, I agree, Jim. I think throughout this process, everyone's been doing this and hoping someone else would make the call. And they're thrilled the state made the decision because they didn't have to, right? Well, and then they just put it back on the school committees. And I think what you're gonna find is, right now, I think, I was disappointed that the mandate wasn't just cut off for the kids at this point because it really doesn't make sense that I can go into a bar this weekend with 100, 200, 500 people and watch the Super Bowl, but the next day a child has to wear a mask for eight hours a day. It, I was really surprised that it wasn't before March 4th, but I think putting it on the school committees, you're gonna see the more liberal, the more progressive uh, school committees around in the cities and towns aren't, aren't going to lift that mask mandate. I think they're going to keep them in their schools. I mean, the city of Woonsocket, I think, is going to go to an option for the parents to decide if the kids uh, are going to wear masks. But I think you're going to see in like a progressive or more liberal town like Barrington, I wouldn't be surprised if the school committee keeps the mandate in place because for some reason masks have become the virtue signal of the left and says, no, we're more enlightened, we're still afraid, we're going to continue with these masks, and if you don't, you're treated like a knuckle-dragging knuckle troglodyte. It's really sad, actually, but I think that, you know, it's not going to be a consistent pattern around the state. I wish it would have just been a statewide lifting of the would, mandate. Would you wonder if at the state house, like they had all those hearings and people were coming about, uh, uh, you know, it's, is it a vocal minority? You, you wonder how do you gauge, if you're a school committee, how do you gauge what your public wants? I, I think there's just an empirical reality that we're, uh, you know, we don't have as many younger children vaccinated. And I can understand parents hesitancy, you know, you just, you know, it's your child, you want to make sure you're being safe. Uh, the teenage groups are fairly well vaccinated. I think it's almost 70% of, of kids over the age of 14. So you can argue that in high schools, they're well vaccinated. But I think there's an effort by school committees and local towns to get parents to get their kids vaccinated so they can move to a situation that is safer to have the kids remove the masks. So that's the thing. I think they're trying to buy a little time, frankly, to see if they can get parents to get their kids vaccinated, knowing that those masks are going to come off. You know, the governor's uh, mask mandate early on, um, actually, my, my daughter, who's a freshman in high school, pointed this out to me. She said, you know, Dad, 
Now that the mandate's being lifted, that is going to apply social pressure to a lot of kids. So I disagree with John a little bit on how oh, some students will wear the mask and some won't. There is a social aspect to those uh, to the students who want to wear their mask but are going to feel pressure from the rest of the school. You remember what it was like to be in middle school and high school to remove and be the outlier and be the outlier and to remove the mask. And I couldn't agree with you more. This was a decision uh, by the McKee administration to put the pressure onto the local school committees. Uh, where those meetings are going to be what you saw at the state house amp that up by 10 with those school committee meetings with both sides being in there uh, trying to make their point how do your kids they've had two years of this yeah. and, and they've gone from middle school and then and then your daughter's now in high school how it's a little bit older but how has that been for them is you know, it just ho-hum or is it? It is ho-hum. I yeah. think really what we hear from uh, when we as reporters go out and talk is we hear a lot from parents my experience is the students are, you know, they shrug their shoulders more or less about having to wear a mask in there. I will say, my wife works in a kindergarten class. The younger kids, it's a little bit harder with them, particularly it's if you're doing speech development yeah. kind of things. Yeah. My daughter uh, is a junior in high school, and she grouses about having to wear masks a lot, so do her friends. And it really doesn't make sense that they have to wear masks in school all day, and yet then they were practicing for field hockey, or they, and they weren't wearing masks, or they were in gym all sitting together and not wearing masks at the time. But then they had to put their masks back on to go into school. One of the complaints I've heard is the inability to hear the teacher, to understand, to be able to express yourself, the fact that it wasn't clear. Not only that, but with a lot of this, uh, the, the, the virtual learning and everything else that happened, the kids have fallen behind. I mean, my no daughter doubt. is an AP Spanish, no and she was told this year, well, you were supposed to learn that last year. All you kids were, and none of them did. How, so, how was that from the professor's standpoint? I know you're on the collegiate level, but you've had to teach in a mask. Well, yeah, I've had to teach. I know that in languages, though, they've tried to come to some accommodation, performance art, theater arts, <coughs> languages, because it's so important to see verbal formation of words when you're teaching languages. So I think that there is, you mentioned AP Spanish. So I think there have been some flexibility on that. But I, I, when I was hybrid this summer, it was very hard for the students on Zoom to hear me in the mask. So I had to speak more slowly. Some of you know that's hard for me. And, uh, <laughs> and be louder. Yeah, how did that go? Well, you know, I'm usually pretty loud. And I had to stop and say, okay, I'll, I'll say that again because you didn't hear me on Zoom. There were kids in the classroom. So it's easier now with a mask in class because everyone's in person. So it's a little bit more uh, accessible. But you know, I don't think anybody likes wearing a mask, except mm -hmm. that we're not getting colds and sore throats, right? I mean, so there's other things that aren't happening to us that would have happened if we, you know, interacted, uh, quote, unquote, normally. But nobody, I think, really wants to wear masks. And I actually think most kids are going to say, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that momentum is just going to really swing. And we also know larger states that surround us, states like Massachusetts and even New York State, the governor said, listen, let's give it till March 4th, see how the kids are doing, and then Coming we'll make a decision. Coming back from vacation that Yeah, week. about, yeah, we'll see how it's all, and then we'll decide about kids and masks in schools. But I also think it's a way of encouraging those parents who have not vaccinated their kids, get them vaccinated, and then we can, you know, lift the And the, and the commissioner mandate. made that point. Barrington 78%, Central Falls 31%. Right. I listened to Charlie Baker's press conference the other day, and I don't listen to Massachusetts regularly, but isn't it interesting now 
now that they're coming off that we hear we're so concerned about the kids' mental health and the educational advancement. And we didn't hear any of that a year ago and when the governor first started, oh, distance, Governor Mundo, distance learning is great. We haven't heard that component. Well, All we've heard is the health care component. Sure, but we're seeing the data now on the impact of the past two years. John is 100% right. The slippage. The, that's right. Remote learning really set students back, um, particularly students who are struggling out of the gate anyway. We also know that um, teachers, coaches, school staff are the front line when it comes to being able to identify maybe something's not right at home. Mm -hmm. um, there was a drop, we did a story on uh, s s reports of potential child abuse to DCYF went way down in 2020 uh, and 2021. That's not because child abuse went down, it's because the reporting wasn't happening. And the same thing is true of domestic violence incidents, right? We know that domestic violence incidents uh, go up Right, but the calls to domestic violence hotlines went down because there was no privacy. There was no way somebody who was being abused could, could who was at home. And then, of course, domestic violence absolutely impacts children. So, uh, you know, it's been really, really difficult. And I think, um, I think. Everybody wants to move past it. The question is, what have we learned that's good, and what have we learned that's bad, so that the next time you know a huge public health crisis happens, we're better prepared. I think that. We have one last, well, the people that, like myself, that believe that the kids should be unmasked immediately. I really do. That's how I feel. And I think this is one last bite of the apple. The General Assembly is going to take up an amendment uh, put forward by the Republicans on the, uh, on the executive powers legislation to see if that, uh, if that mandate will be lifted immediately. So it'll be interesting to see how that vote is. And I think that there's going to be some accountability based on that vote from the from the very vocal parent groups. I, I really believe that. It to be sounds so. like it'll be the 45 days, the way the negotiations right. are going. Right. So, Wendy, th this dovetails into there's always the political aspect, and it's interesting. We've had Governor Mundo, her whole last year was governing under a pandemic, McKee, and so I wonder now, as we begin to finally get out of this, this affects how he governs because it's it's a little less pandemic and a little bit more okay what are you doing for me leading up until the primary yeah, so I mean, how do you think this affects the governor? this is an opportunity for governor mckee to show her honors his vision for the future he wants to be if he runs and he's running we think he's running and uh and he wants four more years what's he going to do with those four years you know how is he going to try to direct even though the assembly directs the money the federal money uh that we're getting uh that we haven't spent yet you know what are, what are his priorities what are his vision what does he think and we haven't had a chance, and he hasn't had a chance to articulate that because he's been governing in a pandemic, and now that's going to slip away, and now we're going to see what he wants to do so he can be assessed by the voters, not only in his own party, but in the state. So it's an opportunity for him. question is, you know, literally, how's he going to answer the call? You have covered many of his missteps. <laughs> the ILO contract, and you just had reporting. Well, you, you tell me, on the Thursday night, you had reporting about that controversial vaccine bonus. So let's talk about that, and then sure. let's, let's widen it out about the larger thing that Wendy's talking about. Sure. So uh, as many people might remember, there was that, as you say, the controversial uh, vaccine bonus where they were going to give unionized state workers, or a majority of, a $3,000 bonus if they got the shot. He got a lot of uh, heat for that one, so he stepped back off it being tied to a, a vaccine, and he made it what he called a uh, retention stipend. It would be $1,500 first payment and another $1,500 coming up. And when's in, that second in payment? July, in July. Um, <laughs> when's the primary? It is in September. Okay, just want to get that clear. <laughs> so what? But he also said that none of the money would be uh, state general revenue money. It would all come from feds. Of course, last time I checked. Uh, there was federal income tax taken out of my <laughs> paycheck. But uh, regardless, that's always a big deal for politicians to point that out. 
Uh, on Thursday, we got an internal memo from the Office of Management and Budget that calculated at a minimum the bonus will cost taxpayers $18 million and at least half will in fact come from uh, state revenue. Now he may be able to hide under well we've got a $600 million you know surplus. It's not a, yeah it's not a $450 million deficit you're shaking your head down there. Yeah it doesn't really matter I mean look it's always a, this is a full Rhode Island and that's the way the best way I can put it it doesn't matter whether it's couched one way as a vaccine bonus couched another way as a retention bonus oh well there's no federal money oh I mean there's no state money oh yes in fact it's half you know, half being paid for by state money. What it comes down to is you're giving bonuses to people. Now you're calling retention bonuses. Why are people who really weren't affected employment-wise by the pandemic getting a bonus for staying at work? I mean, they, they, they kept the job and they were probably very thankful, well, my job wasn't affected by this. I work in the private sector. I know plenty of jobs that were affected in the private sector, but in the, a public employee somehow is getting a bonus for just and, and you remember, employed. we questioned, I questioned the governor, Raimondo, repeatedly, are you considering layoffs or furloughs or one day a week? That never happened for the state workers. Nobody lost the paycheck. I just think, and, and looking at the larger question here, I think that this has been a massive failure by the Republican Party to put forward a candidate to juxtapose him or herself to the, the, the current governor and the rest of the field, because this would be a perfect example. Uh, uh, the, the difference between the mandate positions would be a perfect example. But there's just, there's just nobody on, on the scene. It's, it's really interesting, and it's, and it's confusing, it's actually. It's weird. It's late. Wendy, go ahead. Well, I'm also saying, if you think of the dynamics of the actual primary, Democratic Party primary, you know, Latino voters are increasingly really important in Rhode Island, and Latino politicians are ascendant. Uh, they've already ascended, but they continue to be ascendant. So if you have Nelly Gorbea running the primary, you have Diasa, if there's a primary challenge, and then you have uh, uh, for Jessica... Treasure. For Treasure. For Treasure, yeah. right, right. Um, uh, but, and then Jessica de la Cruz. I mean, uh, Latinos are not a monolithic group. There's lots of, uh, of different allegiances uh, and different partisanships, but you think about that, and you think, well, how does McKee appeal to that group in the Democratic primary. So that's my question. A lot of this seems to be appealing to, you know, possibly suburban voters or people who he's already familiar with. But has he expand out, make sure that he's protect, quote unquote, protected in the primary? Because you could see some other people eating away at his Democratic base. Um, so that's what I'm interested in. Well, I think the one way to do it is is to keep hope for McKee that the primary continues to be pretty packed. I believe we have five uh, announced four announced candidates, and then plus we all the suit plus the governor, yeah. uh, who, by the way, doesn't have to announce because he, he gets a lot of airtime with State of the State, covering the snowstorm, holding weekly press conferences. Holding you at bay. Um, so, <laughs> um, it, it, and Wendy knows this better than I do, but you, you have five candidates in the primary. What do you need to win 35% plus? I mean, mm -hmm. we've seen it before here, so I think that's probably his best path to the primary. This is the first time we've had you guys on since Seth Magaziner left. How does that, and this will bleed into a CD2 discussion, how does his leaving the governor's mm -hmm. race affect both races? Well, I think that you've got, and looking at CD2, now you've got... Are you big, CD2 or are you one? I'm CD1. Okay. You've got, you've got a, a, a very deep-pocketed candidate now and someone who's got national, uh, you know, a, a national pedigree through his family and experience in running these kinds of campaigns. So I think that the treasurer is a natural fit to run on the Democrat side for that race. But on the, uh, you know, in the primary side for the Democrat primary in the governor's race, it just seems like now it's going to be a race to the left. Everybody is going to try to outdo each other and just keep tacking left and tacking left and tacking left to try to get that primary vote. Do you think they're going to drag McKee with him? 
I think McKee is going to try to, you know, give them the Heisman and try to hold them at bay and be like, he's going to try to come off as the more, the rational, the, the centrist, the moderate candidate, and they're just going to cannibalize themselves on the left. And, and they're doing it now. As of, you know, as of yesterday, they all came out, every single one of them, and said, this is too early to have to lift a mass mandate. And I think that's exactly the wrong message that people want to hear. But they're trying to appeal to the Democratic base that are going to vote in the primary. Professor, what do you think of that analysis? Um, I, I wonder if Maxine made this decision a little too early. Uh, maybe he should have waited. You know, you have a long time before you actually have to file. And when he went in, then a lot of people went in, right? It seemed like it opened the door. And there's a lot of competition. On CD2. On CD2. Yeah. And so now you've got, like, kind of a free-for-all. And on the Republican side, you have, I, I would th think, you know, someone who's got local elected experience, Alan Fung, for example, who's got a built-in base. I mean, that's that's hard to, and, uh, you know, I think people are looking for a little more balance in American politics. I really think that's true. And I think in Rhode Island, that's, the, and if people think McKee is going to get reelected, they may say, well, we've got to get a Republican somewhere, uh, and that may feed into the ultimate general election for CD2. You know, it, and we should say Alan Fung hasn't officially announced yet in CD2. I do think he's going to, just based on reading the tea leaves right There's now. There's another but. lively panelist. <laughs> we have to kick off the panel because they're running for another <laughs> office. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, but, you know, with the gubernatorial race, we just don't know how well Magaziner was doing. There's been no polling to, to show us the numbers to, that will give us the impact of the race. I mean, conventional wisdom says, well, maybe Nellie Gorbea has benefited from Magaziner leaving the race, but we, again, we essentially but don't. But maybe he saw the writing on the wall that's, already. That's true. Um, and and that's she's why been doing internal polling, Nellie Gorbea, or there's been, there was at least one poll floating around that Tim had Tim White would tell you, show yeah. me the poll, let right. me see the, the cross tabs. cross tabs. Way ahead of Magaziner what? and competitive with the key. What what Tim White is thinking as all these people jump in is we don't have enough podiums. He's thinking for the debate, what oh, are you going to do? I know. We need to find I mean, some and, pretty and, big venues But So right then now. what do you say? Oh, you're uh, Dr. Munoz because you're whatever. We're that gets problematic, too, because remember the whole including Chris Young or not or tables flying and all of that? But yeah. you've got to decide, are you going to have five people in a debate, and how's that going to work? Well, I've done it. Look, I, I think uh, in 2010, um, I moderated a gubernatorial debate that was all parties. This is when, uh, was it Link? Ch it was Lincoln Chafee, and, and he was an independent. Frank Caprio and Ken Block, Ken Block and John with, Robitaille. Right, and I think we're missing one in there. Uh, yeah, we're missing one in there. But anyway, that was down at URI, and it was like herding cat. Would you right? do, do it in the Ryan Center or what? No, it wasn't in the Ryan Center. It was in one of their well, theaters. Are, are you sure that the future of debates in election years is secure? Because yeah. we now have the Republican National Committee and some people saying, listen, we don't have to do debates in 2024. Uh, I Just wonder, do all digital. I wonder now, you know, if uh, if people like, you know, they say it's not going to be advantageous to me. I don't want to be caught in something. I'm not going to go to the debate. I'll use social media to campaign. You know, on the, on the Republican side, I do agree with Tim. I think Alan Fung is going to jump in, uh, and I think that ultimately it will be his race to lose if he jumps in. I think Rhode Island has a history of, of electing Republican governors. I think that if McKee does uh, get reelected, because certainly there's no one on the Republican side that seemed to challenge him, uh, I think people will feel, will have that, that idea that, well, Alan ran for governor twice. Voters sometimes think, I owe him one, right? And and also right now. And Cranston now, Warwick is strong. Right, and Cranston Warwick and all the suburban cities and towns that I think are going to go red. And I really believe that if Allen jumps in, which I agree with Tim, I think it's his to take. And I think that we'll have a, a Republican congressman. <laughs> when he's saying that we may not have debates, that little tears coming down. <laughs> Tim White's eyes, like, come on, let's get debates. Well, I'll have more time on my hands. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Uh, I mean, I, I'm just saying that's a national trend. I mean, in Rhode Island, I think we're such a small state. People like to see and hear their politicians. So it could 
would be too costly to say I'm skipping a debate in Rhode Island, a small state. But I think as you see larger state politics get really contentious, I think people are going to say, I don't have to do this anymore. John, you wanted to talk about the Let Rhode Island Vote Act. I did. Let's, what are your feelings on that? I just cannot believe that people actually are supporting this piece of legislation, primarily because the argument is, well, this re worked really well during the pandemic. We have a pandemic. Universal mail ballot applications were sent out, which, you know, at my house, my dad passed, I could have voted for him. My sisters, both of my sisters got mail ballot applications at the house, house I grew up in. Former tenants got ballot applications at the house I grew up in. I could have voted for everybody, and nobody would have known because it takes away the two witnesses or the, the notary. What about the signature when it comes in to the Board of Elections? They cross-check the signature. Are they really? I mean, when it comes down to it, are they really? Or are they just pumping the, the ballots? We don't really know for sure, do we? They so might... you don't like early voting? I don't like early voting. Look, I think that we've created a nation and a state full of look, lazy namby-pambies, in my opinion, right? It's like everything has to be sent to you at home on your couch. There's a civic duty. Get out on election day and please vote. You have 12 hours to do it. It's not that big of a deal. If you want secure elections and you don't want ballot harvesting and mail balloting, which lead to insecure elections, we should have paper ballots, we have voter ID in Rhode Island, and we have uh, same-day elections. I think that's that's how I'm an old-fashioned guy, obviously. Maybe you should and be the Republican it, candidate for governor. And that's how it no, and that's I think that's how it should be done because I think it, it leads to fraud or the appearance of fraud, and you want integrity in your elections. The reality is is that there are politicians in this state that want to get around the fact that we have voter ID. I worked for five years to get that bill through the General Assembly, and mail balloting is the way to get around voter ID. When what do you think? I think that we should make it as easy as possible for people to vote. I don't disagree that um, that you want everybody to get out on the same day, on election day. Then make it uh, same-day registration, obviously, so that you can just get up in the morning and say, I'm legally entitled to vote. I didn't get around to registering. Let me register today. Other states Without do a it. provisional ballot. You mean the Right. Would just be register that day. Confirm. We have electronic confirmation. We can do that with voter ID, and then I can vote, and then I'm there. And the second thing is make sure there are polling places everywhere. If you don't want, you know, mail-in ballot, if you don't want early voting, pay more money and have a lot of of electoral polling places in neighborhoods that are don't always have great public transportation you know people who are working uh, people who are retired they're coming off a night shift it's hard to vote make it easier to vote all day long everywhere in the state that's the compromise that's what I would say to people who don't want to have any of these other kinds of voting from a political science standpoint just covering elections uh, this uncertainty makes it very hard to get a grasp on what the midterm elections are going to look like. We don't know what voter turnout is going to be as we sit here right now because of the pending legislation. Obviously turnout will go up if it passes, it will go down if it doesn't. Midterms tend to be tough anyway, but in Rhode Island of course we have a gubernatorial race that's going on. There isn't a president at the top of the ticket, mm. but we now have CD2 which could draw more people out. So there's a lot of uncertainty with all this going on. It makes it very hard reporters and political scientists to predict, but also for the campaigns and how they're going to attack, you know, uh, the next year moving forward. You know, I'm just going to add, the fact that the argument is, well, it worked really well during the pandemic, but it was a pandemic. How are we going to, norm we're going to normalize behavior but because it was a pandemic? Early voting, but it, so in North Carolina, my adopted state, early voting is 20 days before, and they've been doing it for years. Oregon 
is all mail so ballots. So is Nevada, California, so, Colorado, So, I mean, we look at Rhode Island. This is, right. So They've if been you doing look it for years. There's view, no problem with it. It's not like it's all of a sudden the pandemic. Major, huge states in the country have been doing it for years, and, and they've elected Republicans, and they've elected Democrats. So, you know, it's not a, it's, it's well, nothing. It happens everywhere. Why do politicians, and you're, I'm not saying just you, want to make it harder for people to vote? I don't think it makes. I don't, a, I don't, it. I don't think it's a, a, a much of a burden to go and vote. On What's look, wrong with early voting? Not What's, everybody feels it. Obviously, the, I, I agree. the argument is like there are people that uh, have to work uh, during those days. They can't stand in line for three or four hours. Again, that's the argument to to uh, pass. And that's the point I want to make. There are plenty of polling places in the city of Woonsocket, and nobody's standing in line. In fact, the poll workers are just waiting for people to walk in because. Nobody's coming. It's not that nobody's coming to vote, but there are no lines. There's no. You have 13 hours to actually go cast yeah, but the ballot. You might be the outlier. There are places where you do have to wait in line. Well, there are, there are places, and of course, all across the country. And what we have seen, in particularly in the southern states, is that the poor neighborhoods have fewer polling places. This is Republican-controlled state legislatures and governors have, have basically said poor people necessarily don't vote for us, so we're going to make it a little harder for them to vote. That's been happening, and so I think we have to make sure. Rhode Island is a pretty small state. That we make sure it's it's easy to vote. So I don't, you know, I don't disagree that we all want to be civically minded. We all want to get out and vote, and voting is, you know, a really important civic duty. I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I just don't understand the logic of saying that, but not also making it much easier for people, particularly to register to vote. Final point: If you want to do universal mail ballot applications, then clean up the rolls, put the rolls on, and let people know who are on the rolls, and clean up the rolls. That's not happening in Rhode Island. Well, in your dad's case, it takes a couple of election cycles to get him off. Right. The law says before they can kick him off. In my sister's case, they both moved out decades ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other issue. All right. Uh, let's go to uh, outrages and or kudos. Mr. White, what do you have today? Well, I'm, I'm switching it. As we were going coming into the studio today, we were talking You're about something. You're calling an audible. I, I'm calling an audible going into Super Bowl weekend. Uh, the, you know, uh, for people uh, who kind of consume news through social media and, as we've seen recently, uh, public officials and elected officials who I think should know better, um, stop making judgments on reporting based on a tweet or just reading the very beginning of a social media post, click through and read the actual article, you might learn something. Because inevitably, we get a message or a tweet like, what about this? Why didn't you report this? Uh, we did. It's in the article. No so. paywall on Channel 12, that's so read right. the whole article, right? There you go. Yeah, so that's, that's We've outrage. had a career of that, people calling up, and you think that Drives the facts they're talking about. <laughs> John, what do you have? About a couple of weeks ago, I went and got my front end aligned and a few new tires on my vehicle. And now I'm driving up and down Route 146 north and south and 295 north and south. Also known as Beirut. Yeah, and it is <laughs> looks like an absolute moonscape. And it is really <laughs> disappointing that I have to go back and get my car redone because I have gone into potholes that are so massive that make you cringe when you hit them and you know that you've just damaged your car. The roads right now are absolutely deplorable in the state of Rhode Island, and I appeal to the DOT to please patch these things up. They're unbelievable. Wendy, what do you have? Uh, it's hard getting out of Providence these days, right? Um, yeah. Uh, and this morning, actually, I had to dodge uh, coming down here. <laughs> I dodge a pothole. I saw the car ahead of me do it, so I did it. Um, in all seriousness, I think my outrage is, once again, we have uh, the murder of 
uh, an African-American man in Minneapolis with a no-knock warrant. We saw that in, um, Kentu in, I'm sorry, in Kentucky. And, we, you know, I, I don't understand how a police department or any police department, I understand their job is very difficult. I understand it's very dangerous. Uh, I, I would offer also that um, nearly a quarter of police officers injured on the job are injured responding to domestic violence calls. That's how serious domestic violence is. It's a very dangerous job. I get that. But to no-knock warrant and then you, you know, shoot somebody lying on their couch, uh, you know, and you say, say, why? Why is this still happening? And I understand that the individual had a gun. I wasn't there, and we have the video. The point is, you know, at some point, the, the founders put in uh, the Fourth Amendment, right, search and seizure, because British soldiers were bu busting into their house and kicking them out of the house and abusing them. That's why it's in the Constitution. We, we should have more protections against that while trying to maintain the safety of police officers. Just quickly, do we know what the warrant was for? I never... It was for looking for a fugitive for homicide, whom they actually, by the way, caught later on. Totally different person. So, you know, if the sanctity of your home is the sanctity of your home by the Constitution, everybody in this country should have, within reason, to be safe, the sanctity and the safety of their home. Okay. We will end on that. Folks, uh, thank you for joining us, John. It's a, it's a quick 30 minutes with you and Wendy, and Tim, too. <laughs> uh, great to have you guys along. And uh, if you don't catch us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, we're all over social media. You can look on Facebook page. Go to ripbs.org lively, where we post all of our shows. And if you want to take us along for a jog or a ride, we're on your favorite podcast, too. So check us out there. And as Tim says, be sure to listen to the whole broadcast before you <laughs> comment on it. Folks, uh, we hope to be uh, back here. We hope to be back here. We will be back here next week with all the latest as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.